villagers, get ready. Here's Miss T with a word designed with you in mind. Greetings, listeners. You're tuned in to the latest of the greatest edition of Talking with T. This is Tanisha Baker, your host with the most of trending news, noted interviews, rising artists, and much more. It's October 24th, and if today is your birthday, you share it with your birthday mates, rapper Drake and R&B singer Monica. It was on this day in 2005 when Rosa Parks passed away at the age of 92. Today on the national calendar is acknowledged as National Food Day. This day is designed to encourage people to keep it real while eating by cutting back on sugary drinks, over-salted packaged foods, and fatty factory-formed meats. Ironically, it's also National Bologna Day. Well, a good old-fashioned fried bologna sandwich sounds like a good plan for lunch, so I may have to keep it real tomorrow. Oops, can't do that. Tomorrow is National Greasy Food Day. Oh, well, maybe some other time. The theme this month is Facing Your Fears. And as we are on the countdown to Halloween, share with me those things that caused you to shiver and shake. What makes your heart race? What makes you keep the lights on? Talk with me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or call in the talk line, area code 865-409-1170. Again, our call-in line is area code 865-409-1170. We are still highlighting breast cancer awareness through the month of October. We continue to acknowledge the fighters, admire the survivors, and honor those taken, while never, ever giving up hope. Thousands joined together for the 20th annual Susan G. Coleman Race for the Cure in Knoxville this past Saturday. Remember to think pink, get informed, get examined, and stay aware. Breast cancer awareness is important to all of us. As we also continue to bring awareness to domestic violence this month, I want to share an interview done last year from a survivor. Everything said in this interview is still relevant. So I thought it fitting to bring it back to the TWT listeners. Rhonda, it's a pleasure having you on the show today. I appreciate your willingness to share your story and your courage. So let's just start off first, if you wouldn't mind telling me a little bit about yourself. I know you're not originally from Knoxville. Well, thank you first for having me today. And yes, I'm originally from Chicago, Illinois. Lived there for 47 years. I relocated down to Knoxville about five years ago this January. Okay. All right. And what brought you to Knoxville? Well, I was dating this really wonderful guy who lived in Atlanta, got a job in Knoxville, and when we decided to get married, I decided that Knoxville was a much more family-friendly town and a better place to raise my adolescent son, at that he was 10 at that time, than the south side of Chicago would be. All right. And I think um, much of the listening audience is probably familiar with this wonderful man because you're married to Brian Clay. Our Jackson yes, that's right. Artist. So, yes. Right. So, but preceding that, um, there was a stormy part of your life that you were able to, to escape when you left Chicago. And so I mentioned that I was reading a magazine article, The Gathering Magazine, by it being Domestic Violence Month. And as I was reading this powerful story and got to the end of the story, I realized that it was actually your story. And so if you could share with our listeners a little bit about that, because I think we stereotype or have some type of preconceived ideas about what an abused woman looks like. And so if you could share a little bit about that. Sure, I'd love to. 
Um, I am a domestic violence survivor. When in my first marriage, I start off the article by saying it shouldn't have been me. One of the things that I talk about when I say it, when I talk about domestic violence is that it has no um, no boundaries, no limits. It doesn't mind socioeconomic class. It doesn't mind color or race or even gender sometimes. But when I was starting out in my career, mid-30s, I was what we would call your upper middle class, a husband, two kids, a dog, two cars, you know, the whole scene that people wouldn't necessarily believe would be a domestic, an abused person. And the abuse in my marriage started off mostly with um, verbal, verbally, because I was very successful and things like that. And my ex-husband would get jealous when other people would look at me and say, you shouldn't be so pretty. You shouldn't be so outspoken. And and those kind of things, the actual, the, the things that actually attracted me to them. Um, and as we went to the... Because you, you mentioned the verbal abuse. Is that mm-hmm. a warning sign sometimes or often? Yes, very often the beginning of abuse is the controlling situation. Okay. Abusers like to be in complete control. They like for their victims to know, to think that they are in control of everything and that that person has no value outside of that relationship. And they work very hard to impress that and and drill that into your head. Okay. Okay. So go ahead with your story. So you started off with the verbal abuse. um, Yes. The controlling. And that stemmed from a little jealousy. And I guess when we think about powerful women and professional women, we don't think, oh, they would allow themselves to be abused. But actually, that was one of the things that kind of um, sparked the abuse. It did. And it's over a period of time that abusers pull you away from from your supporters, from your family, from your friends, and isolate you. Isolation is the beginning of it. So that you don't have anybody to bounce ideas off of and say, is this right or is this wrong? So they tend to isolate people. And there there came a time when I was sitting on the bed feeding my child, my son who was about six months old at the time, and we were having an argument about him going out and he threw something at me while I was feeding my child and told me if I was there, when, but not if. When he came home, he was going out, which I didn't want him to do. But when he came home, he was going to deal with me and beat my behind when he got home because I was being, I was trying to keep him from going out. Did you believe him? Oh, yes. Most okay. definitely. Okay. Most definitely. Not, he, prior to that, he, there had been just a little pushing, but no real physical abuse. Okay. But yes, I definitely believed him. I believed him enough to pack up a bag with my son's clothes and grab a couple of my things and leave the house and kind of go into hiding. Okay. How long were you in hiding? Well, I hid out for about about a week okay. before I actually um, got up the nerve to tell my mother that I had left. Um, I was hiding out in a, ho- got a hotel room and kind of was hiding out there. And I finally got up the nerve to tell my mom that I had left and why. Because... You know, when you're in that situation, um, I felt, I can't say it for anyone else, I felt very embarrassed that I had allowed myself to be in the situation. And that's one of the things that happens with domestic violence victims. They tend to blame themselves when indeed there's really nothing that they've done to cause the situation. Okay. And so you left. Mm-hmm. I reached out to my mom and I was able to stay um, between my mom's house um and with a friend for a while, and actually one of my friends who is in real estate had a house that she had purchased and told me that my son and I could move into there. Um, 
was a very nice house and very nice neighborhood in Chicago. And so my son and I moved into there. But that was when the stalking began. Um, I was wondering what had he been doing all of this time while you were kind of hanging, you know, staying with your mom and staying with your friends. When I stayed with people, he would stalk, but he never, never did anything physical or threatening when there were other people around because there were witnesses. Okay. When I moved into the house by myself, there's when the stalking started and the um, threatening phone calls and things like that. And until one morning, I mean, he would call and call and call and call where I wouldn't answer. And so one night I decided to spend the night with a girlfriend um, just so that I wouldn't have to be worried about him driving in front of my house or creeping through my yard. A couple of times my neighbors called me to tell me that someone was in my backyard and it would usually be him. Had the police um, been involved at this point? Um, not at that point. Okay. Um, until the night I spent the night with my girlfriend, and it was a Saturday. We had gone shopping, and I just stayed at her house so that I wouldn't have to worry about him coming over or doing anything. And that morning when she dropped me off is when he jumped out of the bushes and attacked me when I was trying to go into the house. And she was um, still there or no? Yes, she was still there. She was okay. in the house with the kids. I had forgotten and gone back to the car to get a bag out of the car. So I was by myself coming back up to the house. But when she heard what was going on, she called the police um, and was trying to help get me away. And when the police came, um, during our struggle, I guess he had dropped his keys. So when the police came, he was calling me, telling me I need my keys. And I let him talk to the police. And they said, oh, you should um, come back and and get your keys because we had issued a warrant for his arrest. But he never ended up doing that. So I ended up having to get an order of protection. Um, which is a very difficult process, at least it was at the time in Chicago. You have to go down to the domestic violence courthouse and file, and it took a very long time to do. And I was sitting there in pain at that time, but still had to stay until it got done. He didn't get served with order of protection for a couple of weeks. And one of the things about an order of protection is until that person has been served with it, it cannot be in full effect. They have to have been... Okay, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I just wanted to mention or bring back up again the issue of order of protection because mm-hmm. I've heard often that either, like you mentioned, they take too long to get or they do little good with someone who is really intent on doing you harm. So you but you were able to get it, but it took two weeks for him to be served. To be served, yes, mm-hmm. because they have to be served by an officer of the court. Okay. They have to walk up to the person and say, are you this person you have been served? And then that way they know. Um, and many people do say that it's it's difficult once you have it. I mean, he told me many times the order of protection was what he was going to leave on my dead body so that they could identify me. Yeah. But it's very important to get because the second time that he was arrested and was held for a week, it was because he violated that order of protection. Okay. But one thing you have to do, when you get the order of protection, you have to exercise it. I gave it to my HR department at work. I gave it to the security people at work. I had one in my car. I had one in my girlfriend's car. I had one in my desk. I had it with me at all times because you have to have it with you so that you can indicate if someone shows up that, yes, they are in violation of an acting order of protection. So you have to keep that with you and stay vigilant. Okay. So you can't be wishy-washy with it. Once you get it, you have to mean it. Yes. Okay. Yes, absolutely. And it's hard. I mean, you're pressing charges and and doing things against someone that, I mean, you love. Obviously, I love this person. I married them. I have a child with them. So there is some part of them that I cared about. But part of um, what I, when I say I left, I left because I had a son and I did not want to 
continue this cycle of abuse. I did not want him to grow up seeing his mother being abused. I wanted him to grow up, if he saw his mother in a relationship, that it was a loving, caring relationship. And that is what I wanted to model for him. Earlier in the show, I mentioned a statistic that said that young boys who are in abusive homes and witness that are twice as likely to become abusers themselves. So mm-hmm. I think that it was a very courageous and wise move to, even though it was hard, to remove your son from that type of environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that is true. And that is one of the things that happened with my ex-husband. He grew up in a home where there was abuse. We attempted to deal with that in premarital counseling. We talked about it. Myself, my pastor, we thought he was in a place where he understood that that was unacceptable. But I guess when you get pushed up against the wall, that's where you go. And I must say this also for women, that when you leave, when the person decides to leave is when they are in the most danger. Right. It is at that time that an abuser feels like their control is slipping. And so when you attempt to extricate yourself from a situation, that is the most dangerous time for women who are being abused. Okay. So do you have any words of advice being on the other side of it and actually surviving this type of situation? Do you have advice for any of the listeners who may be going through it themselves or know someone who is? Um, yes. If you're, if you're in a situation, have a plan. Um, I can't tell you how important that is because, like I said, that's the most dangerous time. So you can't get stuck saying, oh, I got to go back and get my driver's license. Oh, I need my keys. Have a plan. Have a bag. We call them a go bag. Have a go bag that has clothes, that has your birth certificate, that has anything that is vital, checkbooks or checking account numbers, anything that you might need if you have to go away and never come back. Um, have a go bag, have that. Some people have it stashed in the trunk of their car. Um, some people have it stashed, at, you know, not where someone can find it, but where you can just grab it and go. Have emergency money in there. Some women that I've been on panels with or talked to who are in situations where their husband controlled all their money. Mm. So they had to, any credit cards or anything, because if you leave and they cut off the credit cards, you have no access to funds. So have a little bit of ready cash in there so that one, you can have cash, or two, if you're using your credit card, you can't trace it and find out where you are. So um, have a go bag, have a plan. There are so many um, agencies and places that you can call. There's a National Domestic Violence Hotline number that you can call. Unfortunately, there are not a lot of uh, beds available for women in this situation. You know, that's another thing I read, that there are about 1,500 this is across the country, domestic violence shelters compared to 3,800 animal shelters. You know, it's not Mm -hmm. (laughs) as many places to go. So I don't know what that says about society, but I am going to share some information on the website following the show uh, for those who may be interested in following up a little bit more and getting more information on it. Yeah. Um, The National Domestic Violence Hotline, um, their website is just www.thehotline, T-H-E, hotline.org. And um, you can call their hotline number, which is 800-799-SAFE, the word SAFE. Mm -hmm. And they can get you to a local shelter. They can direct you to a local shelter, give you ideas, um, um, and help you out that way. One of the good things about, or especially the national hotline, is if you're looking them up online, they have an escape key. So that if you click on that, if someone comes up behind you, you don't want them to know 
that you've been looking at this domestic violence hotline, they have a click, something that you can click on that takes you to something that is just totally, totally innocuous, doesn't have anything to do with domestic violence or anything, and you can't trace back to that hotline just so that people know. And if you suspect, one of the things, if you suspect that someone is in a, a a, an abusive relationship, the best thing that you can do for them is tell them that you care and listen, but do not judge. Do not ask them, why are you still there? Because oftentimes that's something they're asking themselves and they're blaming themselves. So don't help them blame themselves. Offer them a way out. The people that were most helpful to me would listen and just say, I have a place for you if you need to go. Oftentimes people are afraid to help because they don't want to get, quote unquote, get involved. But definitely never, never blame because believe me, that person is assigning enough blame to themselves for being in that situation and not having the courage to get out. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on Talking With T today. So thanks again for being on the show today, and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Let's hop into today's happy highlight. The University of Tennessee Chattanooga makes history by crowning two black students as their homecoming queen and king for the first time ever. They were selected after an application, interview process, and calculation of votes from the student body. Eric Olson was unable to reach his 87-year-old grandmother, Claire Olson, after Hurricane Matthew hit Palm Coast, Florida. Eric said that he had talked to her on that Friday morning and that she had just lost power. After that, he didn't hear from her for two days. He was calling the police department and no one was answering. Of course, he started to panic. Then the idea hit him. He called Papa John's Pizza and had the delivery man use his cell phone to let him speak to his grandmother. Lo and behold, Papa John's made it. The pizza was delivered and Eric heard his grandmother's voice. He said it was an absolute relief. Keep it where it's at. I'll be right back. You're inside talking with T. Wow, so a lot has happened in the news this past week. So I'm going to jump right into our quick bits and trending news and hit as much as I can with our regular co-host, the know-it-all Professor Jay, and investigator and instigator, P.I. Pam. So I'm going to start by sharing that there is a new bridge, well, not a new bridge, but a bridge that's been renamed here in Knoxville, Tennessee, which has been dedicated in the memory of slain teen Xavion Dobson. The bridge crosses Interstate 275 at High School Avenue. It's marked now with a sign saying, Xavion Dobson Memorial Bridge. Also, a new study reported in the Atlantic found that dealing with racism creates physiological and psychological harm to students of color that contributes to their persistent academic gap compared to white students. Now, I want the Talking With T listeners to listen very carefully to these next two warnings. There's a hacker out of Maryville, Tennessee, taking over Facebook account. You can find a link to more details and how to be cautious through the link on my website. There was an additional scam alert also involving Angelina Jolie, in which users are tricked into clicking on a malicious link that could spread a virus. So if you see this link, Report it as spam, but definitely do not open it. My next story is about a report that the protests in Charlotte regarding the fatal shootings of Keith Lamont Scott in September 
has cost the city's taxpayers $4.6 million. Say 4.6. I did. Yeah, a part of me just wonders what could have been done with that money. But we'll move on. Uh, many people became angry when a 40-year-old Montana man got 60 days after admitting he raped his 12-year-old daughter. Now, this is in contrast to a California man who recently got 1,503 years. I had to look at that again because I almost said days. But it is actually 1,503 years for raping his teen daughter. This is the longest known prison sentence in Fresno Superior Court history. Why they just didn't say you got life? Well, I don't know. Maybe they <laughs> maybe they wanted to emphasize the point and the seriousness the of this offense. 1,000-something years. I bet he was like, okay. That's what he gets, though, you know. And how long did oh, yeah. the first man get? 60 days. Okay, so... Why do number one get 60 and dude number two gets his whole life, yours, and mine? Well, the first guy was in Montana, and this guy was in California. So I don't know if it speaks to how they feel about that or the judicial system in each of those places, but that's a vast discrepancy in the time. Right, and it sounds like to me that when you compare those two sentences, it would seem as if raping your own child is a little bit more judiciously acceptable in Montana. I mm. don't know. I don't know either. I mean, it was a crazy story because when I was reading it, it seems like the guy originally agreed to a plea deal of 25 years. And then he went to court, and there were three counts, but two of them were thrown out. And I forgot what the judge settled on, but basically it ended up in a sentence of 60 days. So like I said, a lot of people were very angry about that. And I'm and not sure be. that. Yeah, they should be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me quickly share yet another story questioning the actions of the police. Last Tuesday, a New York police officer shot and killed an emotionally disturbed 66-year-old woman who had scissors and a baseball bat. Keep in mind, she's 66, that's number one, and number two, she's emotionally disturbed. So investigators want to know why the officer didn't use his sun gun. They had already persuaded her to drop the scissors, but evidently she started, like, swinging the bat in the apartment, and he just opened fire. So, you know, of course, that's another story under investigation, and we'll see how that turns out. Now, didn't you know it was rock, paper, scissors, not scissors? (laughs) Wait a minute. You know what? I'm moving on. I'm moving on. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'm jumping into trended news. Um, And you may remember this story last year about Team Jason Goosby out of Washington, D.C. He was arrested after a woman called 911 stating that she felt uneasy because she was at an ATM and evidently he and his friend were present there. And she also stated that if she had taken money out of the ATM, then she may have been robbed. So, you know, as most often in these cases, video footage went viral and sparked outrage because it showed him clearly in pain while he was being arrested and his friend was shouting that they'd done nothing wrong. Later, the 911 caller said that she did not feel safe, but she did admit that the teens weren't doing anything in the bank and had not committed any crime in her presence. Goolsby's attorney said that this incident had scarred him for life, 
both physically and emotionally. He is suing for $1 million in compensatory damages and $10 million in punitive damages. And I personally hope he gets it because how can you be arrested because someone feels uneasy around you? You know, if that's the case, there's a whole lot of people that would be going to jail on a daily basis. Right, and I, I, I agree with you. I hope he gets every dollar that he is suing for because, I mean, you can't even stand at a freaking ATM while black. Right. Well, that, Add that, that to the list. list. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, we were thinking alike. So um, there's another sad story that hit the news this past Saturday. But two children, ages 11 and 15, were killed during a home invasion in Clayton County, Georgia, and that's, I think, a little south of Atlanta. It's reported that their parents were out socializing during the incident, but they aren't believed to be suspects. Police received a call from inside the home saying that someone was shooting, and that was around 5 a.m. in the morning. When officers arrived, there were signs of forced entry, and they found 15-year-old Davion Coates and 11-year-old Tatiana Coates shot to death. There were other children in the home as well. Their ages ranged from 6 to 13 years old. There is still no suspect as of the most recent report I read. But whoever did this, in my opinion, should burn in hell because I don't know why they felt the need to kill these two kids. And these two young kids, um, you know, probably had nothing to do with whatever was going on, and they probably could have been subdued in some other way if the criminals were that intent on robbing that house. But I do have some questions. Um, so, Professor Jay and, and my lead investigator, I want you to weigh on this, weigh in on this. Why right. did the parents leave those young children alone? That's one question. Because from what I can tell, they're ranging from age 6 to 15, unless they thought that 15-year-old was a babysitter for all the rest of the children. And then my next question is, what social activity happens at 5 a.m.? So... That's a very good question. Uh, and how many children were there in, in all? Well, they didn't say totally. They just said there were other children ranging from ages 6 to 13. So we know there were at least two, the two that got killed, and then at least two more, you know, 6 and 13, but they didn't say exactly the number. Okay. So uh the suspect involved in the home invasion, of course, he needs to – burn in hell, be thrown under the jail, whatever. He does not ever need to see the light of day. But also, I think the parents need to be charged with neglect on some counts here because, again, you mentioned that perhaps the parents thought that the 15-year-old would be a competent babysitter for the rest of the kids. And I'm just kind of throwing this out here. I'm pretty sure that there were more than two other children that this 15-year-old would have had to be in charge of. And at 5 o'clock in the morning, it would seem like to me, as my grandmother would say, it would seem like to me the parents would be at home. And okay. if they were going if they were going to go out and perhaps leave an older sibling in charge of his or her younger sibling, they would be back within a reasonable hour. Now, again, we don't know how many children were involved in all uh, at this point. So uh, it, it's really kind of really kind of hard to say. Now, if like yeah. I said, if the 15-year-old had been in charge of maybe one child, maybe possibly two at most, okay, I could see that for maybe one or two hours. But if there are more than two kids and this 15-year-old is responsible for them, 
and the parents are out at 5 o'clock in the morning, seriously, they need to have their parent card snatched, and they don't ever need to reproduce again. (laughs) Something else is strange. Usually when someone goes in and does forced entry and they kill people in the house, they kill everybody. It's really strange that they just kill the the two oldest. Well, actually, let's see. Now, if they kill the 11-year-old and the 15-year-old, there was a 13-year-old as well. So I don't know if those were the two that were maybe caught them off guard and they just started shooting or maybe those two were up or tried to defend the other ones. I mean, they haven't really shared those details. But I have a couple other questions. One is, why was the house targeted? Like, it just seems strange to me that in a random burglary home invasion that this particular house would be targeted in the wee hours of the morning because typically you would expect for the parents to be home or the adults to be home. And so then I'm, again, yeah. I was going to say that it seems sort of like a setup, like they knew the parents were going to be gone. You know, they they knew they weren't there for some reason, you know, if they're – if they're into partying, which if you're out to five o'clock in the morning, then they probably were. Cause even right, because we know they didn't have no prep meeting. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, well, you know. This might have been an inside job. Like somebody knew what was going on. They weren't going to be there. And maybe they thought the kids were going to be asleep. Like you said, they could have went in and took the, took the stuff. The only thing that makes me think why they did kill them is that they actually knew them. Mm. Well, I didn't think about that, but that's another reason. And then I'm thinking this also. Okay, so if it's a random burglary, okay, that seems odd. They knew that the parents weren't there, and they go in. What was in the house? What can you afford to have if you had that many kids that they they knew that they could go in and steal? So I'm going to leave that right there on the block as well for consideration. So I'm just saying it's a lot of details left out here. But all in all, it's a very sad and unfortunate incident that these two babies, for whatever reason, lost their lives um, in this horrific story. Well, the next two stories should fall under a segment called Where They Do That At. Because I've read them a couple of times and I just really had to absorb it all before I could get myself together to share this. The first one is about a Seattle high school, which is being scrutinized after creating a school pledge called Keeping It 100. And, you know, that pledge, the Keeping It 100 pledge, was created by the school staff. So that part alone sounds okay. You know, I'm thinking, all right, the Keep It 100 pledge, I like that. But But now let's catch the rest of this. Only black students are asked to sign the Keeping It 100 pledge, which is a pledge to be better students. So the black students were clearly upset, and most of them actually threw it in the trash. One student said that they were embarrassed. Now, I have the response here from the Seattle Public Schools, which reads, Seattle Public Schools is committed to eliminating opportunity gaps and accelerating learning for each and every student. A student covenant was recently created by staff at Franklin High School. After meeting with senior students, Franklin staff discontinued the covenant as it proved to be a distraction from their original intent 
which is to increase efforts and support for African-American students and ensure college readiness. In addition, a parent community advisory group is under development to increase the school's collective wisdom, inform their practices, and build capacity to reach the goal of 100% of African-American students being college ready. And I'm like, how much money did they pay somebody to craft that statement? But I was just about to say that that sounds like a bunch of educational jargon. Exactly. And I'm still curious, on the school level, before it even got to the district, on the school level, among the collective staff, and through the approval of administrators, how in the world did they think this was okay? What kind of bubble are they living in? Right. Who approved this? Why is it the African-American kids, you know, are being targeted for a graduation rate? I mean, let's look at it like this. African-American students aren't the only ones who are faced with an achievement gap. You've got students of all ethnic groups who ha- who come from different backgrounds, different socioeconomic levels, and they are met, you know, with challenges that hinder the possibility of them going to college, whether they're black, whether they are Asian, whether they are, you know, European-American, whatever. I mean, if it was <laughs> not European American, <laughs> European American. I'm sorry. Why go on. <laughs> no, go on. Cause I was gonna say something else, but no, <laughs> no, we need to keep and, talking. And Don't know, let her I'm in, Jay. That, that's why I was. That's why I'm gonna keep it moving. So if we're gonna <laughs> keep it 100, then keep it 100. 100 percent graduation rate, regardless of the race of the students. Everybody in the school needs to graduate. All y'all need to go to college. Right. And you know, I was thinking as educators, right, because it said the school staff, even if in their hidden places, in their mind and heart, they felt that this was necessary for the black kids, they could have still just given it to everybody. Right. So, you know, like I said, where they do that at, obviously in Seattle at Franklin High School. Now, got one more that falls in this category. There's a Mississippi teacher that was recently fired after being caught on video. And you know, a lot of people continue to do things. Everything's on video. But this teacher was caught on video dragging a special needs high school student by the hair. And then later in a separate occasion, hit the child upside the head with a thermos. And so I have that link on www.talkingwitht.com. Hence, you don't believe the ridiculous reporting of this story and need to see it for yourself. But again, where they do that at? Like, I mean, I understand discipline can be an issue and some kids are a bit unruly, but you gonna drag a child by their hair and then hit them upside the head with a thermos? Totally not acceptable. And uh, as educators, I know, Tanisha, you can probably uh, agree with me on this. The quickest way to find yourself in the midst of a lawsuit is to do something out of the way with a special ed student. Now, exactly. Uh, I'm, exactly. I'm pretty sure that many many uh, parents of special ed students know their rights. They know, you know, what their children can and cannot do and 
how the teachers are supposed to interact with their child. And the moment that the IEP is breached or the teacher acts out of line with the student or behaves in such a way that the parent is not pleased, oh, instant lawsuit. So clearly, again, as we said in a lot of cases where you've got teachers behaving badly, if, if, if I can call it that, Clearly, this teacher does not value her job because, again, I'm pretty sure that she knew that this child was a special needs student. So, you know. Yeah, she was certified. She was a certified special ed teacher. Oh, well, then she needs to go ahead and turn in her good teaching license, and she can go work at Walmart. (laughs) Well, and maybe she's turning in an application there now as we do this report because she was fired from that school system. And not only that, by the way, this particular system also put the superintendent on leave while they're doing the investigation to make sure that there weren't any biases um, as they look further into this incident. So I don't know if this, like you said, they alone in this story reported too. So we don't know if it's something else going on in this system or not. But like I said, definitely not acceptable in the world of education. Now, before we wrap up our time together, Pam, do you have anything else to share from the Crazy Chronicles? Yes, I have to talk about Mary J. Blige's old husband, soon-to-be ex-husband, Ken Du Isaacs, and his request. Let me let me go back. They're in divorce proceedings, and he wants Mary J. to pay him $129,000 in spousal support. Because, hmm? Yes, because he thinks that that's a nice round number, and his argument is simple. He, she was the breadwinner in their 12-year marriage, and he got used to the lavish lifestyle. But let me break down what exactly that this equals out to. Wait a minute. Okay. Wait a minute. So he he was her lover and her secretary was working every day of the week. <laughs> yeah. And so he, so he wants to he wants to get paid. Now, now listen to what he actually wants. What averages out to the hundred twenty nine thousand dollars a month. He needs $8,000. Oh, a month? A month? Yeah. Yeah, he wants $29,319 per month. What's the $19 for? (laughs) That's what he rounded off. Okay. That's what he rounded off because he needs $8,000 for a private chef, $3,200 for a personal trainer, $1,000 for a clothing allowance, $5,000 to continue paying his parents each month. What's he paying him for? What kind of fees? This is this is what the hundred twenty nine thousand dollars is gonna add up to. Okay, go ahead. I got lost somewhere around the shelf and personal trainer. I mean, just okay. Well, see, first of all, <laughs> instead of getting a personal trainer, he needs to go back over to mama and daddy because since he owes them money, he can go and live with them, and mama can cook. That'll mm-hmm. cut, that'll cut some of that out right there. Okay, right. If that's the case. Why does he need $5,732 a month for groceries? That somebody else has to cook. Yes, somebody else has to cook. And who eats $5,000? I mean, who's he feeding? Oh, maybe maybe he's feeding the personal trainer and other people. Now, maybe he's feeding his kids, his two kids he has from a previous relationship. Oh. Because he needs $5,000 a month to support them. Okay. Well, let me ask this question, and this is no shade because I love Mary J. She's one of my favorite artists. I just prefer to hear her on, you know, CD and mm-hmm. not live. But 
is she still making that kind of money like that for him to even fathom that she would be able to pay him that much money? He said that, you know, since he was her manager, of course, she fired him after she filed for divorce. But he said that Murray earned between $1.5 to $5.1 million over the last two years. Plus, she's on tour now and about to drop an album. Now, he signed, a, he signed a prenup, but he said a lawyer wasn't present. So Murray was nice. She gave him two checks for a total of $85,000, and he still is not happy. He said he has no income now since she fired him. So, Doug, go get a job. I mean, I was get ready to say that. Get a job. <laughs> Live off that 85 until you get a job. Right. He could, he could stretch that out. He could stretch the $85,000 out, go back home to mom and daddy, Cut that five. I still don't understand why he's paying them five thousand dollars a month. You know, okay. this is what he wants. So that's that's considered crazy. Crazy. It crazy. is. It is cray cray. Well, that's it for this bit, and I can't wait to talk to the two of you next week and hear what you have to say. And I can't wait to tell it. And you know, I'm going to say it. Not right now. Early voting has started. So get out and cast your vote for your voice in this upcoming election. Remember that not voting is essentially the same as voting. If you don't like any of the candidates, then just vote against the candidate that you feel is the worst. As an African-American woman, I know that my right to vote had to cross two thresholds. People had to fight to give black people the right to vote, and people had to fight to give women the right. I'll be darned if I'm going to discount those struggles because I'm too lazy, unconcerned, or passive. I'm going to climb off my soapbox and share a few other announcements. There will be a benefit concert featuring Knoxville's own Bob Booker on tonight, October 24th at 4 p.m. at the Beck Cultural Exchange Center. The Hallelujah Carnival will be held on Monday, October 31st at Eternal Life Harvest Center on Martin Luther King Jr. Avenue. That's in the Five Points area. And OBC presents a citywide harvest festival and trunk or treat on Sunday, October 30th from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. on Harriet Tubman. For more announcement and events related to Knoxville, check out www.thevillageofknox.com, the place for positive community outreach. Be reminded that you can now call in and leave your thoughts on topics or issues, and your call may be featured on an upcoming show. The call-in number is 865-409-1170. Once you call, you'll receive instructions on how to proceed. Also make note, I'm always looking to share and highlight music from rising artists, and I look forward to more submissions for T's Top Teens and Hometown Heroes. Well, once again, we've come to the end, but stay engaged by visiting www.talkingwitht.com and following the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. It is impossible to highlight all that goes on in the news, but there are daily posts on all of my social media outlets designed to keep you informed. Remember that you can listen to Talking With T anytime on Blueberry, SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, or Google Music. But new shows drop each Monday. And don't forget to subscribe to Talking With T Daily, the online daily newspaper to get your daily scoop of trending news and find out what we're talking about. On that note, 
I'll end with a quote. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. Marion Williamson. Remember where you heard the word and keep the peace until next week. You've been listening to Talking with Tea.